You're listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, brought to you by Vespa. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast. And I'm your host, Peter Defty, uh, general manager of Vespa and uh, the original developer of the OFM, Optimized Fat Metabolism Protocol for Fat Adapted Performance. And um, today, I'd like to welcome a very special guest um, who you've probably never heard of because he doesn't worry about his followings and all this sort of thing. But um, as we always do, we try to be on that bleeding edge of things nobody's heard about. And uh, today we have John Rutherford. Um, John, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Peter. It's been uh, it's been a, an eight-year-long conversation now and uh, happy to finally finally make it public here with you. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, that's why I'm having you on, actually, because I've got to do some of that shameless self-promotion. And, you know, back eight years ago when we first met, uh, everybody thought I was a lunatic, and you were a little skeptical, too, at that first meeting at, at Wrightwood, right? Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. And uh, this this whole time um, since I, I finally saw the light, I've always had this sense that this has been um, kind of a secret weapon. Um, but uh, I realized pretty quickly that there is so much resistance to this sort of train of thought out there um, that there's really no danger of that. And uh, those few we can convert, um, the better. Yeah, yeah. And, and even with the whole rise of keto and everything else, yeah, trust me, you're still on the you're still way ahead of everybody here. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure I'm sure we'll touch on that. But um, it certainly seems to me, especially if you're um, like most of your listeners, I assume, paying attention to the endurance sports podcast world, it seems like folks have pretty much uh, entrenched themselves into one of two camps. It's either uh, all keto all the time or uh, more, I guess, what you could call the traditional uh, endurance athlete diet. You know, you could probably put the vegans into that group and then um, to some extent, uh, sort of the rest of the sports science world. And there's very, very few folks in between, except um, I think uh, a lot of your your followers, your athletes that you've coached, uh, the Vespa converts, OS, OFM converts, and um, maybe uh, a few professional cyclists who'd rather keep it a secret. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and we've got people in other um, fields like, uh, you know, CrossFit and, and uh, jiu-jitsu and some other sports um, well even even men's figure skating uh, and the Boston Marathon you know we you know we just won that no I didn't realize that yeah not, not surprising at all not surprising well, why at all, do, how do you think that you how do you think that runner can run those that level of marathons and recover you know well no there you go there yeah, you go so. and uh, and very and she very uh, in a very sportsmanlike way uh, waited for a fellow athlete who um, well, this was this was the, uh, the Japanese runner. All right, all right, yeah. wow, yeah, the guy who won it. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So anyway, um, I wanted to share a little thought because to start this off and kind of go off on a something completely different in the words of Monty Python. But um, John's been with me since 2010. I think about this time you started using Vespa. We met in Ju- July, August. I think at, at Wrightwood. That's right. Yeah. 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 I, met, I met you uh, when I, when I'd, um, I found Vespa online, uh, back, back, uh, before we met. And I think we linked up for my very first, uh, very first delivery of Vespa right before, uh, right before Angeles Crest 100 in Redwood. Yeah, I think um, you've been using, I think you've been using it and wanted to get some more, some of the, I brought in some of the Vespa Hyper, which is now the Ultra Concentrate. That's right. And um, I wanted to get you some, and you'd used it a couple of times. We started um, corresponding, I think, in June or July, and it, it it it's a it's a good long journey. But just as much, I've been following your career path um, from being at that time you were working for the black man in the White House, right? Yeah, that's uh, that's exactly right. My last my last active duty tour. Uh, in the Marine Corps, I was an F-18 pilot, and um, somewhat strangely, uh, being uh, totally unqualified for the staff job I went to, which is somewhat the practice, uh, I went to work in the Pentagon on the Secretary of the Navy staff as the Marine White House liaison officer. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, a, cap- a captain in the Pen- between the Pentagon and the, and the White House, uh, great fly-on-the-wall experience, but um, that also happened to be the time 
that I was uh, finally kind of given the opportunity professionally to also be able to train and complete a hundred miler for the first time. That was yeah. uh, 2009, 2009 Vermont, and then um, had a really rough time nutritionally in Vermont, uh, Vermont 100, 2009. Uh, achieved my goal there, but only through uh, great and unnecessary suffering. Tracked you down thereafter, Mitchie and Wrightwood, and my uh, second, uh, the second 100 miler that I completed was there in Wrightwood that next day. And yeah. a bit of the, a bit of the next day too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you you completed it and you you noticed immediately that this was working because you recovered quickly. You didn't need as you need as many calories. You did get dehydrated on that one set stretch that we we talked about. But but I here let me just first go off on this completely different tangent. So you had this this John's had a pretty great career. He was an F eighteen uh, driver. Well, before that, he was on the U.S. development team for USA Cycling, too, right? I mean, that was the time of uh, Tyler Hamilton, Lance Armstrong, all those good guys. And um, That's and, right. I'd say I, I, was, I, was, I was just about, I'd say, half a generation behind, behind those guys. They're all, uh, they're all early, early mid-40s now, and I'm 38 years old. Um, but, yeah, they were, they were all just ahead of us. Uh, but you were I in that same. the U.S. Cycling team. That's yeah. right right at that time and and because you were literally unwilling to do certain things you had to take made a a choice to to take a different career path went to uc davis and and then into the marine corps correct yeah that's 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 absolutely right it was really it was really two factors Um, on the one hand um i had the benefit of having uh a great uh great set of parents who were very straight with me and a great coach as well. And uh, recognizing what the limits of my talent were, it was uh, ultimately a decision that was also shaped by the doping culture in cycling at the time. I, well, I don't want to say that was the full decision. It, it was also in as much as um, I recognized the limits of my talent. And I think um, I think I could have made a career of it, uh, but ultimately my talent level in the sport was not quite at the point where I could justify devoting my entire professional life to it and got some great advice from my parents and uh, went, went to college and, and chased my dream of becoming a Marine fighter pilot. And somehow or other that happened. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know. The talent is one thing, but there's a lot of drive and determination and work and, and you're willing to put, put in all that. But, but ultimately for a lot of different reasons, you made those decisions and went, went on to, um, you know, get get an education and then go on to be a, mm-hmm. a, a F eighteen driver, right? And multiple tours Absolutely. in Iran and Iraq, or Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly, exactly. Yeah, back to back tours, uh, predominantly Afghanistan, 2007, 2008 time frame. Good, good. Okay, so, and then then you decide to make to continue um, to be in service after you rotated out of a, a, an active military. So you're still in Marine, in Marine Reserves, and you're now a Foreign Service officer for, with the Department of State. Correct. Uh, that's exactly right. I had a I was um, very lucky. Um, there was some uh, due diligence on my part, but ultimately there was some luck involved too of going uh, going from my my Pentagon White House job on a Friday uh, to uh, State Department on a Monday, and. Um, State Department has taken my family and I to Russia for a uh, first tour, uh, Lima, Peru, thereafter. And um, right now I'm in full-time Serbian, uh, Serbo-Croatian, uh, they'll call it Serbian language training. Can, uh, we, can, our, can um, we disclose next, your, next your location where we're, we're, we're recording this? Yeah, having, uh, th- th- thanks to the, the glory of technology, I'm in Belgrade, Serbia right now. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And so this leads to me to my oddball thought. This is how Peter Defty's weird brain works, and I, I know I know that from the look you gave me when I was telling you the first time we met. But, but I was thinking the other day, John Rutherford, if I were president of the United States, you would be my Secretary of State <laughs> because you speak Russian, you speak Spanish, now you speak. Um, the, the Croatian, Serbian, Czechoslovakian, that whole Eastern Europe thing. You've had military experience, so you know, you know how to use force, but you also know when to use it and why it's reserved for when it is. And you're, you know, you, you, you've always been much more diplomatic, shall we say, than I have. And I, I, no doubt you learned uh, a lot of that 
in your duty as the White House liaison because a lot of your work was just not the ugly part of informing um, wives and families that they'd lost loved ones, correct? So, right. I, mean, I think um, yeah. So I'd say I'd say that the the choice to go into diplomacy as a as a career was um, deliberate, and I'd say based on my experience, uh, yeah. my experience in Afghanistan, and um, yeah, give me a few years. So, so yeah, well, <laughs> but, give, me a, uh, give me a few years to become president. I don't want any part of it right now. <laughs> right now, we got to save the world from themselves. Yeah, uh, I, uh, but I, 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 I really think I, that was the thought that crossed my mind. I thought. John's really the no, guy I, that's uh, fitted for this job because I mean, right uh, now it's a good. You've been in Russia. You've developed relationships there. You act with well, develop relationships without watching a bunch of you know, whatever. Um, right. You know, I, 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 you know, it was very, it was a very deliberate and, and intentional move on my part to to join the career foreign service and to, uh, and to really uh, become a specialist. In, in diplomacy and to spend a career here, and it's a different track than than being um, being a political appointee. Uh, and uh, I appreciate how um, our service really develops us into well-rounded generalists, and and we're able to have these connections around the world and ultimately represent the United States. It's a, it's a real privilege. Right, but you also have the balance of, of of having seen war and fought in war, and know knows you know there's times when diplomacy works, and you want to use it. At, at all costs, but then it's good to have somebody like you being a diplomat who also knows what the other side of it is. Correct. Yeah. You know, ultimately, you know, in the sim- in the simplest terms, uh, you know, uh, when when diplomacy fails or um, uh, there's no other option, then you know, absolutely, it's a terrible thing. But having having some sense of um, the consequences there definitely uh, definitely sharpens my sense of uh, the importance of this work. Yeah, no, no. And, and I just want uh, you to know that I think you don't give yourself enough credit first. And I want our audience to know uh, what a gem of a guy we have on today to get some insights into what we're doing with with fat adaptation, because you were one of uh, you were one of the early adopters of this. So we met in 2010. And I remember kind of the look on your face because you knew the Vespa worked and, and you knew there's something behind it. But then I started asking you questions about your diet. You were practically vegetarian then, correct? Little fish? Little yeah, chicken. I was. I, I absolutely was. There was there was no chicken, and uh, there may or may not have been fish. I, um, I'd been vegetarian for a very long time. I was vegetarian all through my, uh, my, my short career as a, as a full-time cyclist. And uh, that had nothing to do with sport, and it had almost become force of habit at uh, at that point but you could certainly say that i uh, subscribe to the traditional endurance athlete diet at the time that we met and yeah. um and i was i was paying for it big time well you were you were kind of um uh shall we say taken aback that i was kind of a little bit you know not so diplomatic shall we say and and just no, you know, I kind of just said to you you know look if you want this stuff to really work here's right. what you do Right, absolutely, absolutely, and um, and I um, I think like probably many of your listeners, I'm I'm fairly Type A, and and I took that on board, and there were really no half measures, and I went pretty much all in, and um, yeah, we yeah, started, I, uh, it works. Yeah, well, we started communicating, quickly. and I gave you some of the scientific basis, but 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 you know, at that time, the landscape was pretty devoid. I mean, I was like the only one. There's nothing. Yeah, you were I, was, it. Absolutely. I was it. Yeah. And uh, so you've kind of seen this landscape kind of transpire from where it is now to this whole keto craze. And like you say, you have this two camp thing right now. We have the keto people and then you have the conventional high carb. And and, and um, this is going to lead to some some more stuff. But what are your going back to your thoughts on that? It was um, so it. You know, I met I met you uh, in person in, in 2010, and I think that my initial skepticism is very similar to the skepticism that uh, a lot of folks have when they first hear this. Um, not only does it run counter to, uh, you know, what we're told in traditional sports science with respect to uh, carb- carbohydrate loading and in-race fueling, so on and so forth, but it also runs contrary to what you know we've been we've been told since at least my generation since we were kids with respect to following a low low fat low cholesterol diet, and um, 
when I met you, I, I had never been exposed to really anything, anything but that. So um, going into uh, the faster study, which I, I think we'll probably get into um, in a bit here, that was uh, full, I think, three years on from when we first met. We, um, uh, my, my time in the lab there at UConn was in October of 2013. Uh, so I'd had a full uh, a full three years of fat adaptation before they got a hold of me, uh, but what I really think about now uh, is a strong indicator for um, for the results I got out of the lab there. Um, that's a a real sort of objective indicator about why there shouldn't be just these two camps, but why there is this OFM which takes the best of both. Um, forgive me for oversimplifying, but. Uh, one thing I take away is I look at my my max fat metabolism rate out of that study at 1.7, 1.78 grams per minute. Um, that was taken during a VO2 max test at about 95% of VO2 max. And I think that there's been some acceptance in the traditional sports world because of the FASTER study that yes, you can follow a high, a high fat carbohydrate restricted diet and switch your model metabolic substrate utilization to more of a fat-based uh, fuel source. But uh, I don't think there's been much acknowledgement that uh, fat can actually fuel very intense efforts. I, I don't think it's anything new. People have been saying for, for years and years that you know, during aerobic activity, fat is your primary fuel source. Uh, but one of the, one of the uh, things under the radar to come out of faster and I don't know if this is necessarily even called out during the study, uh, but was that max fat uh, fat metabolism was actually recorded during the VO2 max test at very, very high output. So fat was still doing most of the work. You know, you right, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It was both. It was glycolytic. It was. It was both. But right. um, I, I think. I think in the in the sort of popular parlance, and I'm, I'm not a scientist by any means. I need to throw that out there. Uh, I'm a. You know, if I'm. I'm. I'm definitely the stick monkey F-18 pilot, liberal arts, liberal arts, liberal arts background. Uh, so please take this with a grain of salt. But um, from my reading, the traditional literature is, uh, you know, this sort of lactate threshold, below lactate threshold. Uh, yes, you can be predominantly a fat burner, but above it, you're glycolytic and you're a sugar burner. And uh, like most things, it's more complicated than that. Yeah, and that's, that's the interesting thing that leads us to this, um, is that... M all but I think one or two of the low carb diet cohorts in the faster study were were in the real world. They didn't do straight keto. They did one form or another of OFM and all used the Vespa supplement in their training and racing. And, right. and you're one of those. So you know this is one. Of, this is the other thing that kind of I think keeps faster um, kind of boxed in is it's is it's still trying to stay in that hardcore keto camp. And that's the problem what we're, you know, I'm seeing is like, you know, what we're doing is much more nuanced and we're sort of out there, you know, for lack of better terms, doing it cowboy style, but it's getting results, but nobody, there's no science, there's no quote unquote science and data except results as the data. Um, that's right. Fortunately, doctors yes. and Volek have recognized it, that I'm doing something pretty unique, but it's still not science. Right. I think if, um, if, if the goal of at least some research is to determine what, what an, uh, an optimal diet, obviously it's highly individualistic because everyone responds, responds differently, but to determine you know, what, what an optimum diet is for, for endurance performance, uh, I can't think of anything that, at least for me personally, works better um, than OFM. And I, I think you see some acceptance of that in professional endurance sports as well, where you can drive the, that metabolic adaptation, that fat adaptation. And then as you talk about um, strategic use of carbohydrates, it's, it's, like, it's like rocket fuel and it's very intuitive. But I found that with um, some, some athletes who I um, informally advise, uh, especially athletes who are just starting down the fat adaptation road, um, and I'll, I'll admit to having fallen into this trap myself, there, you develop this fear of carbohydrates um, that really gets to be unproductive at a certain point. And that was a real learning point for me uh, was um, 
accepting that, yes, I could in fact use carbohydrates uh, for t real tactical gain during a race or training situation without giving up any of the adaptation gains I've made. And I, I think that where that tolerance level is, it depends on your level of adaptation, how long you've been at it, you know, what, what your, um, and probably, probably what your, uh, your, your, um, your, um, your tolerance level is just based off of lifestyle and genetics and, and everything else. Uh, so it's highly individual, individual, but I've noticed that, um, both of myself and other athletes I've talked to, there can be a real fear of, you know, even having a grain of rice, you know, it's, it's uh, not only is it okay, um, but it's distinctly in your, in your favor and to your advantage. Once you are fat adapted, it, uh, it is the key to performance. Can you finish an Ironman? Can you finish a hundred miler and actually do quite well, full up keto? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's scores of podcasts and race reports and, and, uh, you know, Facebook posts of people talking about how they, how they went out and ran 50 miles and nothing but salt and water. Sure. To me, however, uh, the proof is in the pudding. There's nobody out there winning Ironman at the top of their age group <clears throat> in Ironman who's full up keto. Uh, I think you see endurance, um, you see elite endurance athletes who are, um, uh, following a traditional endurance athlete diet and we're winning those races there. There's no question that, uh, you know, athletes following that diet are still at the top of the sport. I question how well they're recovering from it and their longevity in the sport relative, relative to if they were following an OFM type protocol. Uh, but there are also OFM athletes, as you mentioned, Boston marathon who are out there winning and, uh, not only due to the performance benefits acutely on the day to strategic carbohydrate use when you're in a, in you're in a fat adapted state, um, but also because of their ability to consistently put down the miles uninjured, not suffering from chronic overtraining because of this sort of high, um, uh, this sort of dependence on, on, on sugar and carbohydrate on a day in day out basis that really just wears you down. Right, right. We're talking about the inflammation, the hormonal imbalances that's created by the insulin loads, um, the lack of nutrition, um, a whole host of things. So, um, and 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 I want to reiterate the whole recovery thing when we're, when we're talking about recovery, when we're referring to it in terms of OFM and Vespa, people notice that recovery, and you you certainly notice it every step of the way when you first started using Vespa to starting to do OFM, to using our 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 latest top secret protocols, um, that the the recovery is is just insane. And and the point I want to make here for the audience, and I've made it before, is it has nothing to do with re, it has very little to do with actually recovering. It has everything to do from preventing the damage in the first place from oxidative stress, lactate load. Um, you know, hormonal imbalance, all those things. And you can certainly attest to that every step of the way because you've been part of this this experiment since you started using Vespa, correct, John? Yeah, that, definitely. And uh, and again, I'd say um, if I look at it from workout to workout, it's subtle and it's difficult to notice. But if I back off and I look at my training logs, uh, especially before and after and now consistently, what I'm able to maintain with, uh, say, 15 to 20 hours a week, uh, I'd say I'm averaging 13 to 15 hours a week right now of training when I'm not really preparing for anything and just kind of having a good time riding my bike and going for a few runs. But um, specifically in the build for an Ultra or an Ironman, when I'm laying down 20 hours a week, um, I couldn't have done that without breaking on a traditional protocol. And it just becomes intuitive and sustainable on OFM. Yeah, and, and, um, and, and your and your life your life is, is is your life load is pretty full too. On top of that, fifteen or twenty hours of training, you know, your full time State Department, Marine Corps Reserve, two little boys, a wife who's got a career of her own. Um, Absolutely. Um, so just like a lot of people in the audience, it's a full life load. And this is one of the things about OFM that uh, really works is, is we see this sustainability. You've been 
practicing it for eight years and, and you've seen the flip side in your cycling career. And, um, you know, you, we see these phenoms come up in ultra running all the time. There's, there's a number of them who come on the scene and for two or three seasons they're, they're at the top of their game and then all of a sudden you start to see them disappear with injuries. Right, and that's certainly what my what um, my career would have been in ultra running because um, what I had gotten to when we met was was unsustainable. I simply gotten to a point with ultra running where I expected to bonk, I expected to I expected to throw up around the forty five fifty mile point in a in a hundred miler, uh, or say thirty five forty miler miles in a in a fifty miler, and. Um, that was just normal. I expected to bonk and have digestive issues, and uh, and 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 then to, and then to basically crawl across the finish line. So I needed to basically maximize the amount of time before I bonked. And then, you know, I think a lot of a lot of people that story resonates with a lot of people because it's it's uh, why you see you know Ironman course, um, you see porta potties every every uh, every aid station, and a line for them later in the race. So um, what I was doing was simply not sustainable and. Um, uh, before I forget, uh, I, I wanted to mention that um, OFM Vespa completely changed sport for me. I literally have not bonked once in eight years, and I've given myself every every opportunity to. the uh, The last time I was in dire straits in a race was about mile fifty fifty five due to that dehydration issue we talked about. Thirteen miles between aid stations uh, out uh, out of Wrightwood and Angeles Crest. Uh, that was the last time. Uh, I ever had extremis in a race. And, yeah, um, yeah. And, the and, one thing, the one thing I changed was was uh, was going to OFM. Yeah. Now, and, and I think that's an important point for the audience because it seems like in the ultra endurance, even in marathon training, and certainly in Ironman, half Ironman, and, and ultras, this whole idea of of having GI stomach issues, being a puker. Um, you know, it, it seems like it's a—it's almost like a rite of passage and a badge of, and a lot of people wear it as a badge of honor. And then just being wrecked after a race and down for a month, and you know, this just doesn't happen with the athletes we're working with. Yeah, it uh, doesn't. And I think it's—it's it's not. Um, yeah, you don't need to have uh, a science background to understand that. You know, when you're putting that kind of load on your body, and you're simply eating less because you don't need to eat as much during the race and you're not putting the same load in your digestive system. It's just, it's just that simple. And, um, some, there's definitely some athletes, I think at the very top of Ironman, especially, uh, a key to success there for the elites who are out there going sub eight hours. Um, uh, they have trained their bodies to be able to put down 400, 500 calories an hour on the bike and, you know, more power to them. I, I don't have the gut for that. And most people don't. But uh, there's some people who do, and they're they're able to uh, able to get to that level of performance. But I think that also has a has a cost, both in terms of sustainability in the sport, uh, long term long term health outcomes, and um, you know uh, also it, it's not necessarily the best example for the mid mid pack age grouper who uh, who has 15 gels taped to his top tube. Yeah, yeah, and and it, you know, and when you talked about your talent or you were hitting it lack thereof for your cycling career you've mentioned to me frequently now you've fallen back in love with the bike and you know with OFM it's a whole nother ball game so you know totally. I, you totally. know what do you think about where your talent and, and performance would have been had you been doing this back when you were on the bike as a as a young young man well, in training yeah it's an interesting interesting hypothetical for one there was absolutely nobody else doing this and um I'm, I didn't have a power meter back then. Uh, obviously, I, I have one now, um, uh, and it's uh, interesting now to see that um, my uh, best performances, objectively speaking, you know, five-minute power, twenty-minute power, hour-long power, are all fasted, and that's uh, that's really interesting. And I can't I can't explain that, but my best rides are. Uh, a cup of coffee with some heavy cream, a Vespa, go out and get like a good two-hour warm-up in, and then just throw down. And yeah, ha- put the hammer down. Yeah. What are exactly? You, are you exactly. are you taking your your post-exercise ketone and blood sugar after that yet? Have you de- played with that to see what your surges are? 
during my first Ironman build, I did that. I did that quite a bit. Quite a bit. Um, part of the uh, part of what enabled that is I was a geo bachelor in Russia at the time, and I had nothing to do but work and train. I had, you know, the house was nothing but, uh, you know, a bike on the kicker and, you know, my ketone meter and I was all dorked out with it. Um, I stopped doing that because it became very, very predictable. And one, the ketone strips are expensive. Um, and uh, two, they kind of stopped giving me information after a while because the results were very, very consistent and right. reliable. But um, at post, post exercise, I'd get done with a good you know, five hours, five and a half hours on the bike, and then a, a pretty firm 30 minute runoff. And um, without any exogenous ketone supplementation, I'd be around uh, three, three and a half millimoles. Wow, super, super. And you could get to where you could intuitively tell what was going on, correct? Mm -hmm. You can feel it, you can feel it, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. And that's where we, we try to get people to use, you know, data as a tool, but not chase the numbers. And that, that in this, this current, paradigm we find ourselves people tend to be chasing the numbers so right so tell us you know currently you've had a pretty successful last couple of years doing triathlon and um you know you you won uh an outright at savage man half right that's right yeah yeah that was in the build in the build to kona i think um that was just a training race for you it, it was a training race, and it is one of the situations where uh, you know you kind of take the pressure off yourself to a certain extent, and uh, great great things happen. But uh, yeah, I had a had a uh, average day in the swim, uh, an absolutely um, phenomenal, fantastic bike. day on the bike, and uh, and then it was kind of just hanging on for dear life on the run. I think I, I got off the bike eight minutes, eight minutes, six eight minutes up on uh, on 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 second place. And I ended up winning the race by about a minute, minute and a half. So I was losing the time, losing time that whole, whole race. But um, that kind of speaks to where my run was at at the time. I um, qualified for Kona in March 2017 at Ironman New Zealand. I ran the race on a known stress fracture, a diagnosed stress fracture. Uh, but hopefully, as most of your audience can uh, can appreciate, uh, there was already the sunk cost of round trip ticket from Peru to New Zealand, uh, you know, three months of training, everything else, uh, out in the track session, two and a half weeks before race day. And, um, it, during the warm down, I instantly felt that twinge of what could have only been a stress fracture. I'd had one on my right foot before getting ready for, um, uh, a 50 miler, uh, way too soon after Western States 100 in 2011. So I knew instantly what it felt like. Talked to my coach, Christian Manietta, a uh, little plug there, tri-specific, fantastic coach, one of the only guys in the triathlon world who actually gets this stuff. And um, we decided that, all right, well, you're going to race this thing. You're going to swim, uh, swim as hard as you can swim, and basically time trial to T2, because who knows what's going to happen when you try to run on this thing uh, after two and a half weeks of no running. Um, got off the bike, I think first in my age group, and uh, basically just started counting guys passing me and, and hung on for a Kona slot by the skin of my teeth. Uh, about 10K to go, the stress fracture completely fractured all the way. And uh, it was just one of those adrenaline driven last six miles, last 10K of a marathon to, to bring me in for, uh, for my Kona roll down slot in New Zealand. Had to recover uh, as best I could, two months of no running. And the whole Kona build, unfortunately, was, um, uh, I'd say, about as perfect and near genetic capacity as I could get, uh, genetic, genetic potential as I could get for both swimming and cycling. I, I don't think I'll ever have another four-hour, 45-minute uh, effort like I had on race day in Kona on the bike. Oh, I doubt uh, I it. Think the watts I think the watts I put down there are, are uh, about what, what my, my body's capable of, just hands down. Uh, the run was limited, though, by the fact that I could never quite get the volume or, or quality uh, that I wanted out of my left foot because I was still dealing with this this bone callus from a just healed, uh, completely fractured, fractured metatarsal. So that's a long way of saying that uh, I've got some unfinished business, and I know I know my fastest Kona is still out there ahead of me. I finished 9:39, which. Um, uh, I'm, I'm normally pretty modest about this stuff, but I'm, I'm proud of that. That was, um, that was the best I had on that day. And um, with what that course dishes out, I, I couldn't ask for anything more. I'm um, seeing 939 on the board there was, uh, uh, it was, 
it was probably the best moment in sport I've had right up there with, um, with, with coming across the line, uh, with, uh, a time I'd only dreamed of at Western States in 2011, uh, that you coached me to the 19, 1930 and change 19 hours, 30 minutes and change. Um, so yeah, ultimately some unfinished business because, uh, you know, one of the beauty, beautiful things about triathlon is it, is it's complication and trying to get all those things to come together, not just on race day, um, but, uh, tweaking and training. So, um, getting back to your original question about, you know, where would I be as a cyclist with, um, you know, what I know now about nutrition and recovery, periodization, uh, training, um, Ultimately, I'd have to say uh, I'm kind of glad I didn't know because I'm I'm pretty happy with where with where life where life took me and uh, and I learned a lot I learned a ton from cycling and I'm in a spot now where I can enjoy the sport for the sake of it and uh, also um, I've never ever suffered like I've suffered on a bike I mean <laughs> yeah <laughs> man <laughs> that is a, that is a blue collar job wow I mean it is it is hard work I have I have more respect for those guys. That is some tough, tough work. It is um, uh, a lot harder than it looks. Yeah, I, I can imagine. But you also have, we've also talked about where your Western states, because after 2011, you knew you had more, and then you had that fall. That's later. right. And so, right. Uh, you know, I think there's there's a lot more out there. And, 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 you know, one of the things that's great about this sport for, you know, people who want to be fairly serious about their their sport in 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 conjunction with the rest of their life is is this is a, a great way to be doing this as a sport for life i mean whether you're doing triathlon ultra running stuff with your kids um you know it just seems like it it turns that that aging clock way back to the crawl right yeah definitely longevity in the sport and um I'm really heartened by a number of the other athletes you've coached into their 40s who've had top 10 finishes at Western States. I mean, that's that's just an inspiration to me. And it, yeah, yeah, it, Jeff uh, Brown, Jesse Haynes, right. yeah, yeah. Well, Roxanne Woodhouse, she's going to be 55, and she's won three Tahoe Rim Trails in her 50s. That's amazing. See, I think that part of that speaks to wisdom and experience, especially especially at that distance. Yep. Um, Absolutely. It's only something that can be learned that can be learned through experience, but it also speaks to the longevity that athletes have by by following the OFM approach, and right. um, yeah, it's a gift. Well, you, you and, stumbled and, on you stumbled on something pretty. Um, yeah, pretty I amazing. know it was pretty accidental. Trust me. <laughs> but um, <laughs> and let's talk about uh, Daryl, who we'll have on the thing because you've met him, and 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 that's kind of a really interesting case study because. Speaking know, of inspiration, oh yeah, my gosh, I mean, you know, people, was, people he, think I'm crazy. <laughs> he, got, he got stronger as he went. And, right, that's uh, absolutely amazing. Yeah, and, and so, you know, uh, and, you know, he did the, a month after finishing Moab, you know that after he finished um, uh, Moab, he ran a, a 23-minute PR at the Marine Corps Marathon just five days after running 250 miles. And then a right. month later, he ran the Okinawa survival run, first foreigner to finish it. And one sleep cycle later, he did the Marine Corps PT and scored a perfect 300. So that's uh, that's superhuman. I mean, that's super. I mean, that's absolutely amazing. Well, kind of from from a guy who did not have the background, either, and he and he's not even built like is, a runner. He's built like a marine. Right. You know. Right. You know. You look like a triathlete. He he looks like a marine. Yeah. Yeah, phenomenal. Speaking of, speaking of inspiration, those distances are um, uh, amazing. Yeah, uh, truly inspirational. Yeah, but that, and also, you know, what what people would tell you is is impossible. You know, but clearly, yeah. uh, data is all right there. I mean, it's proof is in the pudding. Well, it's you it's, it. it's real world, world results, but it's not like science is anecdotal, right? That's that's how right. people do it, and. Uh, but you know, you and you've known other people like Mike Morton and um, mm -hmm. Dan Lentz and some other, and this this definitely has application for the military. It's just, I think that right now the way the military goes about it is they want science and science doesn't, you know, if you're trying to apply science to the real world, it really doesn't work. You need to take the science to help understand how to apply real world solutions. That's kind of what yeah, we do. Definitely. I'd, I'd agree. I mean, I, I, just 
logically speaking, there's a clear military application, whether you're talking about, uh, you know, the logistics of, of having to um, uh, move less calorie-dense food around a battlefield um, to being able to survive and perform at a very high end on fewer calories or simply perform on no calories at all. There, there's, there's an obvious military application there. Well, I think even for the mental acuity when you're, say, you're flying and, d- d- you know, well. and using, uh, using complex weapon systems, I'm, I'm hearing, I've had a co- couple conversations, one of my new athletes is a guy in Okinawa who's flying a F-15 fighter. I guess there's only two F-15 fighter squadrons out there and he's on one of them. And then also having some conversations out here at Lemoore with people who are instructing and taking. I mean, it's all about the software now. Right. Uh, yeah, I certainly wish I, I wish I'd had this in my. I wish I'd had this in my uh, my toolkit when I'm when I was flying when I was flying operationally. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, because even even back then, as a, as a pilot, being carbohydrate dependent, you know. Um, eating a goo in the cockpit after you know four or five six hours in and kind of being on that uh being on that sugar train constantly was um you know it, w- it was an impediment you don't recognize it when you're when you're in it but um if you look at the alternative uh there's obviously uh, a benefit to be had there yeah it's 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 kind of interesting because flying is one of those things where you got to kind of stay awake uh and you do it but when you're in that sort of way it really takes a toll afterwards and i think that that's part yeah of the especially uh, it definitely definitely it's no and it's it's no secret how at least uh, op- operationally uh, u.s military pilots are staying awake and that that clearly has a cost and when there's a uh, natural alter- alternative that's clearly preferable yeah exactly and and i think also on the on the back side of that when they get in i think that tradi- i think they probably forced to clean that up but you, you know, when you look at the traditional fighter pilots, I think, and military pilots, that probably a lot, probably had a, was a factor in leading to, you know, the abuse of alcohol and cigarettes and just that, you know, you get up to fly and you fly and then everything else comes crashing down. Yeah, especially, especially old school, uh, yeah. you know, when there's much less, rec- much less recognition of uh, the sort of toll that stress in general can take, let alone, let alone combat stress or landing on the ship every night. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, one of the things we got to we got to talk about about you and, and, and you can't, um, you know, negate this is. As part of the faster study, uh, you were the you are currently the human that's got the highest recorded rate of fat oxidation, correct in the world? Yeah, as far as far as I know, there's never been another another human being in a lab setting uh, who's re- recorded uh, that level of fat metabolism per minute. I think it was um, grams well, per minute. One point seven eight, one point seven nine grams per minute, and I think I, as we've talked right. after faster, I think you're capable of more than that. But we'd have to, you know, get the Vespa going and a couple other things. right Vespa and, and uh, uh, yeah, def- definitely some of the other protocols we got going that uh, can kind of drive up the fatty oxidation, and hopefully we can get to that and play with that here. Um, sometime in the next couple of years we can get some funding to, yeah, to do some of that stuff. I, I hope so i hope so and ultimately you know if you if you come down uh, you know the a big hole in the research that i would like to see as a as a practitioner as an athlete is uh you know what happens when you take a fat adapted uh, study group like you had in faster uh, you put them on the same sort of test the three hour uh 65 vo2 max uh treadmill run uh, but then you ramp it up at the end to sort of like end of a race simulation uh, with uh, with supplemental sugar. You know, ultimately those strategic carbs that you that you talk about, and you compare um, that study group to a traditionally fueled group, and um, that would be really interesting. And I think that would start to get at really, um, you know, it, it kind of getting away from um, you know who can metabolize more fat, but really get to the question of you know what what's really going to optimize performance, you know, what's going to optimize performance, what's going to be sustainable. And there's a bit of a hole, a bit of a hole in the research there, I think, because of uh, some of the tribalism um, between, you can say like the traditionalists and, uh, you know, the vegans and the high carbs and, and the, uh, you know, the fruitarians of the world on the one side, and then um, sort of the paleo keto folks on the other. 
Yeah, yeah, it really is something in between. And as you said early on, very individualized. That's one thing I found that's a constant is it's so individualized. Right, definitely. Yeah, you. Um, I think one of the great, great things about endurance sports is you, um, you, you have this uh, end of one experiment that's constantly ongoing, and you figure out, you figure out what works, and you figure out what doesn't. You figure out what level of periodization works for you. You figure out how much is too much. Uh, it's kind of figure out how to figure out how little is too little. But um, you know, one of the things that I've I've learned uh, over the last couple of years for me personally is that I'm kind of a hyper responder to. Um, to high intensity intervals, but that I also get stale very quickly on that. Um, and I'm not, not the kind of person who can sustain a high intensity interval workout even once a week, every week for eight weeks straight. I need two to three weeks of it and then I'm on form, you know, with a, with a good base. So that's just an example of a, an individualized um, observation that I have that kind of goes against anything you'll get out of a, you know, uh, sort of a, a cookie cutter approach to to endurance sports. So, uh, in general, I think you know because kind of gets to the larger conversation. Um, I think we could all do a better job of being a bit more intuitive about what works for uh, us as individual athletes. Yeah. And the only way to do that is to experiment. Yeah. One final topic we'll touch and then we'll close out is is let's talk a little bit about hydration. And, and you found out the hard way that day in 2010 at, at AC, but you never looked back. And and that, you know, hydration is a very dynamic thing. And, and you know, your sodium needs grow up. And, and um, just touch on that, please. Yeah, I'd say um, my uh, my salt requirements and my sweat rate have um, gone through the roof since OFM, and I don't I don't know um, if that's a factor of being a lifelong athlete and uh, ultimately uh, my body finally just caught up, um, or or if the inflection point was really becoming fat adapted. Um, but I'm at a point now where. Um, I really can't overdo the salt in a race. Um, I've gotten more intuitive about about thinking about you know um, using taste as a guide, uh, but as a baseline, I'm I'm basically taking one S cap, which I think is about 200, 200 milligrams. Three hundred three hundred forty one sodium. Something like right uh, as a as a baseline on a uh, say a, a temperate sixty degree perfect running weather day. That's my baseline. Uh, somewhere like Kona, I'm getting closer to a gram of salt per hour, um, if not if not more. Yep. And um, and my my sweat rate now is just through the roof. I mean, uh, I got to stay on top of that. That's been critical. And honestly, there's there's no way I could actually, if I had the same hydration requirements, um, and I was trying to put down 300 400 calories an hour on the bike and gels or chews or, or whatever there just simply isn't enough room in the human gut for all that so it's kind of one or the other it's hydration and salt or it's food but you really can't put down enough of both and still expect your body to process yeah no um, so that's still go ahead go ahead i was saying it's something i've gotten i've gotten more intuitive about um with with respect to the salt and um and my baseline now is ultimately um taking more than I think I need. Yeah, and, and, and once again, it's a very dynamic thing because if it's cold, wet weather, you take in hardly anything. So it, it's not, you know, people are starting to think they can go into a lab, get their sweat rate uh, tested, and then formulate this this thing of how much water and sodium they need, and it's not like that. It can change on a dime, and, you know, I've, I've had a lot of athletes try to engineer it, and then, they, you know, they go to a cold cold run, and they they get too much, too, too much, and they start picking up weight. And then on the other days, they take too little and, and wind up dehydrated. And it's, it's kind of like sure. you say, it's a very intuitive journey. Yeah, you've really got to learn to listen. You got to, you got to feel if you're an athlete who, who has a tendency to cramp, you've got to pick up on those, on those, uh, those early warning signs. Um, you've got to listen to, you know, slosh in your stomach, all that stuff, and pick up on it, play with it in training. And then there's the whole other side of, uh, of, of the, uh, the endurance sports world where, um, you've got Sky talking about tactical dehydration, and how yeah, you know when you're dehydrated, your uh, your watts per um, your watts might go down, but ultimately your watts per kilo might go up because you're actually down two kilos of water, and uh, you don't actually need to push the push the same watts to get to the same or higher watts per kilo number to go up a hill. 
So yeah. um, being dehydrated isn't necessarily a bad thing. Well, yeah, I think when that one or one to two percent range, you're fine because you know before you start exercise, you tend to be have those reserves, and and, and going mm-hmm. down one or two percent isn't going to do anything. But but then maintaining that with a high level of power output and thus the heat thermal regulation you need to do it that's where you have to have the right that's a very fine line yeah it's a very fine line so john um let's uh kind of close any other closing thoughts on on your journey and and what you think you can help the audience like you said it's it's kind of a you've you've been one of these people who've been doing this for a long time and and you've kind of gone through the same uh process as everyone else probably more because you know keto's popular now back when we first met Everybody's laughing at me. Right, right, absolutely. And uh, honestly, I kind of did too when when we first met. You know, it's uh, it, that's okay. You know, on the face of it, for most of us, yeah, it's it kind of seems like heresy, but it is. Um, <laughs> you know that 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 gets to the the last the last couple things I'd like to say that you know uh, fundamentally it changed it changed sport for me. It, it made it. Um, you know, something that was very goal oriented for me, you know, based around a time or a result to uh, something that actually became enjoyable again. You know, there was no fear of bonking, um, you know, energy management and just enjoying the sport for the sake of uh, for the sake of it and being out there. Um, it was just night and day between before and after. Second, I'd say that, uh, you know, 99 percent of us, uh, you know, um, count myself as a listener to your to your podcast are, are out there and I think most of us are really intrinsically motivated you know we're uh, we're about there uh, about getting out there to, to find out you know what the best version of ourselves can be how how can we improve um, how can we get the most out of ourselves and on any given day to really kind of find the limits and see what happens when you find them and and when you exceed them and um, you know experiment it's uh, that's ultimately how uh, how I went down this journey with you is that uh, I decided that, you know what what have I got to lose and um, you know worst worst case scenario I get no better and the situation stays the same uh, best case scenario is ultimately what I've experienced and that's sort of been a, a whole a whole new world of uh, bonk proof endurance sports so again thank you thank you John thanks for being on here and uh, that's another episode of the OFM Food for Thought podcast. Uh, with John Rutherford. Thank you. You are listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, sponsored by Vespa.